I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mirror Framework, M-E-E-R Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. More Ukraine coverage on this edition of the program. We have two interviews this time. First up, Zachary Pakin of the EU Affairs-focused think tank CEPS and a non-resident fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy joins us to give a broad overview of what is happening currently and the implications going forward. Then, David Swanson of World Beyond War, a global anti-war movement, joins us in the second half of the program. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Welcome to Parallax Views, uh, Dr. Zachary Pakin of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, a non-resident fellow there. Uh, How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking about the uh, crisis that we see with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But first, maybe you could tell uh, my listeners a little bit about your background and areas of expertise. Uh, So I did my PhD in international relations at the University of Kent in Canterbury in the UK, uh, where I focused on conceptual and theoretical issues related to the liberal international order and international society more broadly, uh, and looked uh, in that context at uh, the state of great power relations specifically between Russia and the West and Russia and China. So what are we to make of the invasion of Ukraine. I think a lot of people were taken off guard by it. Uh, A lot of people may have thought Putin was bluffing. Uh, What is your take on how this all came to be? Well, I I think that uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of people were taken off guard by it. I think that it was, while very shocking, nonetheless, quite a predictable outcome uh, of uh, 30 years of post-Cold War history. 
you know, the past uh, 14 years since the uh, the uh, uh, Bucharest uh, summit of NATO that declared that Ukraine would become uh, a NATO member at some point, uh, the past eight years of the Ukraine crisis since the Euromaidan revolution, uh, and uh, recent years, more recent developments and tensions between Russia and the West culminating in the past several months in which Russia put forward, uh, you know, its uh, declared uh, security concerns uh, and wanted official legally binding security guarantees to deal with them. Uh, it was evident that uh, the West was not prepared to discuss those uh, while they were prepared to expand the strategic uh, strategic stability dialogue that had been underway since June of last year uh, after the presidential summit between uh, Presidents uh, Biden and, and Putin in Geneva. Uh, there was a complete red line drawn uh, on the more uh, serious security guarantees that Russia was demanding in late 2021, uh, which they made very clear were their number one priority. That was their number one focus. As much as they would have been happy to, to, to discuss more about uh, strategic stability, uh, at the end of the day, what they really wanted to discuss late last year was Ukraine's status. Uh, they, and in particular Vladimir Putin, wanted to put this issue to bed once and for all. It's a legacy issue for him. Uh, and the outcome, seeing as the West was unwilling to discuss uh, you know, these, these issues of core importance to, to, to Russia, was a war. Uh, now, that does not justify the war. The war is you know, an illegal act uh, of aggression, uh, and, and nothing can possibly justify the decision to resolve one's problems through such uh, uh, military means, especially brutal military means, as we're likely to see in the coming days. But nonetheless, it was a predictable uh, outcome. Uh, and it's unfortunate that, that more people did not see this coming. Perhaps had you know people thought this through to its logical conclusion, perhaps there would have been a willingness to discuss a little bit more at the diplomatic table in a fashion that could have been acceptable to all parties and that could perhaps have averted a war. In regards to this history and the guarantees, what were the guarantees that uh, Putin, Russia, uh, wanted with regards to uh, matters like Ukraine and NATO? Well, there, there were, uh, you know, a number of, of things that were put forward in uh, the two draft treaties presented by Russia to the United States uh, and to NATO, uh, which centered mostly on Ukraine's status. Uh, there were also demands, you know, concerning the retreat of NATO effectively back to, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the military configurations of, of the 1990 of, of 1997. You know, that that date is is relevant because it's the year of the NATO Russia founding act. Uh, and therefore, basically, uh, this this was a moment in which, uh, you know, basically the Yeltsin presidency at the time uh, had acquiesced in effect. Uh, to NATO expansion, but did not verily want to admit that it had done so. And so Putin basically wanted to turn back the clocks on that front and, and wanted to say, look, you know, we only agreed to these things because we were weak in a basket case back in the 1990s. Now we're strong and we're in a position to revise the European security order. Um, and we no longer want to live by, you know, the, the principles of an order that were effectively imposed upon us. But the, the core, the, the central thing that, that, that Russia was demanding concerned uh, the status of Ukraine. Um, they, they wanted to make it, you know, abundantly clear uh, in in terms of of legally binding security guarantees that Ukraine uh, would not join NATO. Now, obviously, the issue concerning 
uh, Ukraine's membership in NATO could not have been resolved in any event by legally binding guarantees. That's that's not something that ever could have passed the U.S. Senate or be ratified by other NATO members. Uh, but you know what might have been feasible uh, is something agreed at the political level, perhaps at the Madrid summit in in June of of this year, where the new strategic concept of NATO is going to be agreed. Uh, and, you know, that that could have perhaps, you know, been a, a moratorium of some sort of length at 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, uh, who knows, but something that could have allowed NATO to claim on the one hand that their their open door policy had not been entirely eliminated, while nonetheless assuaging, uh, you know, Russia's concerns over NATO's orientation, uh, over Ukraine's orientation, excuse me, towards NATO. Now, I mean, to me, it's obvious why why Russia would not want a country on its border to to join NATO. Uh, it, great powers in general do not want uh, rival uh, military alliances or uh, alliances that they perceive to be hostile, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, on their borders. Uh, and they especially also do not like to be excluded from uh, the you know security architecture of uh, their region. And you know much of you know the, the majority, eighty percent of of Russia's population lives in the European portion of the country. Uh, so Europe very much is Russia's region. Uh, it is in fact the most powerful country in military terms in Europe. Uh, and the, in the post Cold War order, Russia has been effectively excluded from the core of Europe's political and security architecture outside the EU outside NATO. So there's dialogue that has existed throughout the past 30 years between NATO and Russia, uh, but that dialogue has been more formal than substantive, in particular because once something is agreed among NATO member states, and there are now 30 of them, it's very difficult for that position to be you know, substantially altered afterwards uh, in consultations with, with Russia. Uh, now, this is not to say that Everything concerning uh, the the Russia Ukraine issue has to do with NATO. Uh, the 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 process of NATO expansion over the past thirty years has certainly provided the backdrop or the context uh, against which uh, we have seen declining trust uh, between Russia and the West. Uh, and it and it certainly even more than the you know perceived security threats, as I just mentioned, it's the issue of Russia's you know perceived exclusion at a time when after the Cold War, after the the fall of the Iron Curtain, Russia wanted to return uh, to Europe very much to its historical rightful home, uh, as it were. Uh, but of course, there are other issues involved as well. There's the issue of, of Russia's relationship with Ukraine, independent of these issues of European security uh, or, or post-Cold War European history. Uh, you know, there's there's the fact that that Russia and, and Ukraine ha had up until the collapse of the Soviet Union been a part uh, of the same country. Uh, whether it's the Russian Empire or the USSR, for many centuries, uh, and and uh, you know it goes back, of course, even further than that, and in, in the narrative of of uh, in the telling, as it were, of Russian history with the birth of of the Russian people in, in Kiev, the mother of all Russian cities, Kievan Rus, etc. Uh, so there there remain after the collapse of the Soviet Union some unresolved questions over the precise boundaries of the Russian nation, whether or not all Eastern Slavic peoples, including Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians form a part of that single people or not. Uh, and, and so uh, those those do remain unresolved. And what you're seeing right now play out to a certain extent is the continuation of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which, it, which should really be understood as a process more than a singular event. I think what took people by surprise, I said that people were taken by surprise by this earlier. I think there's this idea that uh, Putin is some grand chess player of geopolitics. He's always been one of the more rational players is what a lot of people say. He's sort of a realist. Um, how do you respond to that? Like, what do, you, what do you make of 
the move he made because uh, a lot of people now are saying uh, it, it seems like he's motivated by more romantic concerns um, or, or normative concerns. Uh, I, I just don't know what to make of uh, why Putin made this move when he did. Well, I, I've always rejected both of those characterizations of Putin. I, I've never thought of him as a master chess player. I think he's much more of an opportunist uh, who is capable of deploying force uh, decisively and, and rapidly uh, when an opportunity arises to advance his conception of Russia's national interests. And I've never seen him as a realist, in, in part because of the reasons that I was just describing. Uh, Russia's concerns uh, yes, there's obviously issues related to, to security. It's framed in the language of security. Uh, but at the end of the day, it has more to do with, with politics and, and with exclusion, right, about Russia's sense of exclusion from post-Cold War Europe. And so those aren't you know, material concerns or security-related concerns as much as they are normative concerns or ideational concerns. So I think it, it really makes much more sense to think of, of Putin as you know, a, a conservative in the, in the sense of, of the international order, someone who wanted to resist the expansion of the liberal international order in a fashion that that compromised Russia's you know perceived uh, you know interests and and privileges that that come with its established great power status that it obtained uh, you know centuries ago, but that was reinforced at, at the founding of the post war order in 1945, uh, and uh, you know I, I think that that's just a, a much more accurate description of of the man that uh, that he is and and of Russia's concerns more generally. Um, now, obviously, this particular. Uh, intervention in Ukraine has raised a lot of questions about, you know, is Putin a madman? Is he has he gone insane? Is he too isolated from from people, uh, you know, not only due to the covid pandemic, but also in the years prior in which he was increasingly surrounded by by a smaller circle of advisors who were telling him more or less what he wanted to hear? Uh, you know, or, or, or you know, is this, is this probably just a, an outcome of groupthink, you know, similar to what you saw uh, in the lead up to the Iraq war, which, you know, in, in, indeed is another parallel, uh, you know, between the U.S. invasion of Iraq and, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, many have been made in recent days. Um, I, I, I obviously there's only so much that we're going to be able to know in the here and now, and it will be up to future historians to determine when precisely, you know, the decision was made to to attack Ukraine. Uh, for the reasons that I outlined before, it's possible to make the case that this was a rational decision, that at the end of the day, if the West was not willing to, to talk about the status of Ukraine in a mutually acceptable fashion, uh, and you know, Russia no longer, for a whole host of reasons, had any trust uh, you know, in, in Western pronouncements, uh, and, and Moscow believed, you know, and had many reasons to believe that, uh, you know, the, the West basically used norms and values, the, the, the language of norms and values, you know, as a tool to advance its own interests at the expense of, of Russia and effectively to keep Russia weak. Those, those beliefs, uh, you know, are very deeply ingrained in, in the political elite in, in Moscow and have become so over the course of many years. Uh, so, you know, it's perfectly rational in that context to say, look, there's, I've exhausted every diplomatic alternative. The only option I now have uh, is military, and it has to be an, uh, a full-blown onslaught. It can't just be a small land grab in the east because, you know, with the same regime in place in Kiev, uh, Ukraine would continue its, its Western uh, orientation. Now, of course, we, we don't know right now, you know, precisely the, the, the circumstances that led up to the decision to go to war. Uh, but, but nonetheless, there's a case to be made that indeed, you know, it, it can be viewed as something rational, even though Putin, who has spent the past 22 years carving out a reputation as someone who has prioritized stability, a degree of restraint in foreign policy and economic growth and, and prosperity for much of the Russian population, for him to gamble all of that on, on this gambit in Ukraine did certainly seem out of character. Well, I was going to say, 
it may not even be an issue of Putin has gone mad. Uh, or I'm even say I'm seeing people speculate, maybe he's dying and he's trying to, to go out with a bang. And I'm like, that's all very speculative. And I don't think trying to psychoanalyze Putin is helping. I mean, it could very easily just be an act of hubris in the same way uh, the U.S. war in Iraq was an act of hubris. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, the Putinology, which is something that has been going on in, in Western media and political circles for far too long, is counterproductive. At the end of the day, uh, one of the great things ab about uh, international relations theory is that uh, you never really know what's going on in, in someone's head. So there's really no point in trying to predict, uh, you know, there, there are any number of different reasons why states behave the way that they do. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think that it's particularly useful to, to for someone to say, I know precisely what's going on inside the Vladimir Putin's head because, you know, people are motivated by all different sorts uh, of factors simultaneously and people come together into societies and into states uh, that act in their own ways as well in, in, in different ways that individual units might act. Uh, so that's where sort of these the, the theoretical understanding of the world can can help us. And of course, you know, there's not just one theory, but I think many different, uh, you know, theories that can come together and, and provide different uh, explanations, different facets of, 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 of our ability to understand, uh, you know, political events uh, as they occur. I just had a few more questions here uh, that we can briefly get into. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to get into was, uh, we talked about the NATO aspect. There was also uh, the weirder part for me of uh, Putin's uh, recent speeches was this talk of, well, I'm doing this because there's genocides going on in, in these republics uh, that, that have uh, separatist elements and I'm going to defend them. And also he talked about uh, denazification. Uh, and while I, I think, you know, there are these really far right elements involved in things like the Azov Battalion, I, I don't think even most of West Ukraine is, is Nazi. And I, I don't think there's uh, evidence that a genocide is going on. So do you, do you think he's just gone maybe a little bit off the rails or completely off the rails when it comes to those claims? Well, I mean, those those claims, uh, while completely, um, you know, uh, ridiculous, uh, you know, are part and parcel of uh, a narrative that has been promoted uh, in Russia for quite some time. And since they're in keeping with that narrative, it very much makes sense from a logical perspective why he would seek to take them forward to justify his war in Ukraine. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm not going to deny that Ukraine has has problems with ethno-nationalism and with, uh, you know, neo-fascism and the like. It, it's certainly an issue. Uh, and it has also been an issue that uh, Western countries have been seen to be turning a blind eye uh, to, to, you know, those types of movements in Ukraine. Um, in the name of supporting Ukraine in its transition to democracy and supporting Ukraine uh, against Russia, at least from Russia's perspective. Um, now, part of the reason, of course, why why Putin might have advanced some of those claims in the lead up to the war, uh, as Tim Snyder has said, and you know, I don't agree with everything that that Snyder's written, but you know, certainly he makes a good point here, which is that obviously he that Putin wanted to provide some sort of a basis. Uh, you know, to um, affect regime change in, in Kiev and possibly to try uh, and imprison, possibly even kill uh, members of, of Ukraine's existing regime if the military operation had gone according uh, to plan. Uh, but it didn't. Since it hasn't gone as planned, where do you think this operation is headed? Well, the way things look right now, and, and I rely on, on reading many other military experts for my information, but the way that things look right now is that um, this military operation is about to get a lot more brutal. 
uh, that uh, Russia is in at this point and they cannot pull out um, uh, without losing face. It, it uh, seems like they're moving towards like siege warfare tactics. Siege warfare tactics, uh, you know, heavy artillery. Uh, we could be seeing many civilian casualties, uh, you know, in, in, in the days ahead. Um, you know, my, my understanding based on the military experts that I read, uh, you know, is is that, uh, you know, Russia's military is, is artillery heavy. That's what they do best. And what they've been trying to do in the first few days of this war is basically some sort of a uh, you know a, a race to Kiev to try to to you know get there quickly, uh, bring a swift end to the war so that there are very few uh, economic consequences in terms of sh- sanctions or you know domestic political consequences in terms of opposition from the Russian population to the war. Well, uh, and, and also, I, I, not to interrupt you, but I, I think at first there was a little bit of um, not restraint, but I, I don't think Russia was completely going after the infrastructure because, you know, after this is over, uh, assuming Russia prevails in this, uh, they're going to need to make agreements with whatever regime comes into power in Ukraine. Well, precisely. I mean, uh, and and they also need to be able to, you know, have support of, of the Ukrainian population for the political change that they sought to affect. Uh, but unfortunately, they rapidly miscalculated. If you, if you, uh, excuse me, massively miscalculated. If if you read, you know, the things that Putin has written about Ukraine and the things that that he says about Ukraine, you know, he's of the view that uh, you know Ukraine is basically a dysfunctional state. It's not a real country. Um, Ukrainians are basically a part of, of of the same people as Russia, and so presumably he thought that you know the Ukrainians wouldn't fight back. Uh, that this would be, uh, you know, an, an easy uh, takeover. They could just waltz in, change the government, etc. Uh, but as I said, that was just a massive miscalculation. Um, so now, you know, they have to get something. You know, they 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 cannot uh, end their military operation without having secured, you know, at the very least, at least at this point, uh, you know, Ukraine's uh, neutrality. Uh, you know, perhaps even Ukrainian recognition of, of Crimea, some sort of agreement that that, you know, NATO forces will not be present on Ukrainian territory, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, that, that that's the, the bare minimum right now for for Russia to be able to to obtain. So, I mean, if they can't get that through a, you know, a rapid thunder run towards Kiev, they're going to have to start leveling cities. And it's going to be horrific to watch. And it also, you know, brings significant uh, risk of, of uh, escalation. Uh, you know, uh, to to the level of of a conflict between NATO and Russia as well. So there's there's a lot to be worried about in the days ahead. I wanted to get into that if we could. What are the risks uh, for NATO getting involved in this turning into more than just a conflict between Ukraine and Russia? What are the risks uh, right now? I mean, there there are any number of risks. There's the risk of inadvertent escalation, and then there's the risk of deliberate escalation. Right? I mean, if it becomes clear. Uh, you know, after several weeks that that, you know, Russia's military advances are still stymied, even even though right now they're clearly trying to regroup, they're going to, to move forward with greater force. But if the Ukrainians just refuse to give in, uh, you know, that it, and, and, you know, this is becoming an increasingly unpopular war at home for Putin. Uh, you know, it could well be that that uh, Putin begins to take more reckless risks in order to to save his own neck. And we don't necessarily know what those are going to look like. And we pray that they don't go to the nuclear level, but that's entirely possible. And then, of course, there are the risks of, of inadvertent escalation, right? There's the possibility 
that you know Western sanctions, which so far have proven to be uh, you know far stronger than than most people expected, um, you know if they cause devastation uh, economically speaking in Russia, uh, there's going to be very little reason for for Russia to want to to de-escalate. If anything, they would only want to escalate at that point because they likely think that those sanctions are not going to be lifted anyways, uh, uh, especially because Putin will basically be reviled, uh, you know, in, in, in the West. So, you know, that could escalate into major economic sanctions imposed by Russia against the West. It could escalate into cyber attacks uh, by, by Russia against uh, the West, which could lead to cyber tit for tat, uh, you know, interactions, which in turn, you know, could escalate to the conventional level. Or it could well be as well that, that NATO states in attempting to provide the Ukrainian military or Ukrainian insurgency with weapons, uh, that those weapons convoys could be bombed by Russia, that, you know, Russia would feel like it has no other option but to do that, especially, you know, if Russia's military advance in Ukraine is being stymied. Uh, so, you know, that, of course, comes with the risk of, of military conflict between NATO and Russia as well. So there's any number of different ways that, that this could spin out of control. Uh, and what has me being pessimistic right now uh, is that a diplomatic solution for some of the reasons I outlined um, you know, is not around the corner right now, right? Russia, you know, has has the bare minimum in in terms of of political conditions that that it can settle for, uh, and Ukraine as well does not. As long as you know it, it's able to stop Russia's advance, at least for now, and it has you know strong support from the West, which you know has proven to be perhaps stronger than some people have expected. You know, Ukraine doesn't have much of an incentive to to give in either. So it, it looks as if this conflict could drag on for days, perhaps perhaps even weeks, and that comes with some 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 significant risks. I also wanted to get your thoughts on how people are reacting to this. Maybe people that don't understand the international relations aspects, um, you know, lay audiences that are now sort of, I think there's a lot of people uh, on social media acting as if they're uh, geopolitical experts now. And I think that's not been a good development. Um, I've seen people getting very angry over NATO um, rolling out no fly zones at the moment. And uh, to me, I think a lot of people are, pushing for things that would push us into World War III, you know, if they were actually taken up. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure NATO or the U.S. Is, is really interested in that. But seeing people not consider the possible ramifications of one false move in this uh, crisis uh, really disturbs me. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that as someone uh, who has studied international relations and looks at these risks. Well, look, I, I think that unipolarity has broken a lot of people's brains in the West. Um, you know, the, the Western countries, particularly the United States, have been able to do whatever they want for the past several decades with no other great power capable of, of checking uh, their influence. Uh, and so we've, you know, uh, developed foreign policies that in, in many cases are rooted exclusively in what, or at least we believe that are rooted exclusively uh, you know, in values and that do not uh, sufficiently account for security-based considerations or security-based risks. Uh, and a lot of the people who want to see, you know, who, who are arguing for a no-fly zone to be, uh, you know, erected uh, over Ukraine, they're well-meaning. They want to protect civilians. Uh, but, you know, this isn't Libya. You know, this this isn't Iraq. This is, you know, a, a war in which a great power, a nuclear-armed great power, is directly involved. Uh, and, Erecting a new fly zone, a no fly zone over Ukraine means directly attacking uh, the Russian military, including uh, Russian military assets that are stationed on Russian territory and that are capable of 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 uh, of, of uh, you know targeting Ukrainian skies. Uh, so you know this this is very very dangerous talk. 
uh, and I'm I'm encouraged so far to see that that uh, you know the U.S. and and NATO have been have been clear that a no-fly zone is not something that they are actively considering right now, but it it's quite dangerous. In fact, that that you know th there's this tendency when when we see evil going on in the world that you know we say oh we have to do something we can't just stand by and watch we have to do something. Uh, I mean, and to me, just to be fair, it's I, I understand the emotional reaction of course it's very human it's a, it's a very human reaction absolutely and and the only problem uh you know is that this is straight out of the 19th century where basically the people are demanding a war you know and, and you know we live in a world right now that is no longer unipolar uh and we just have to accept that fact that that in international relations unfortunately you know there isn't always a good option and a bad option sometimes there's a bad option and a worse option uh, and this war was avoidable for the reasons that I outlined before. I think that there were missed opportunities over the past 30 years, over the past 15 years, over the past eight years, over the past year of the Biden administration and over the past few months, all of which were missed. Uh, but we're here now uh, and we've just got to deal with it. And we, we should do whatever we possibly can to help the people of Ukraine, of course. And we should be rooting for them and hope that they win. And, and they are you know, in incredibly uh, resilient and, and demonstrating remarkable courage, uh, but we have to calibrate our economic response and our military response extremely carefully so that this does not get out of control. Because as bad as it is to see civilians absolutely leveled, it's even worse to see millions of people incinerated. Real, real quick, too, because you mentioned the unipolar topic. There's a lot of talk about the unipolar world and the, the multipolar world. And I've seen some people make the case that we shouldn't use this term multipolar. It's just a term the Kremlin uses uh, to justify uh, Russia uh, violating international laws in the way that uh, the U.S. and some of its allies have done. I don't think that's necessarily what everyone using the term multipolar world is doing, though. Uh, could you address uh, the, the way people use that term and maybe making distinctions with how it's used by different people? Uh, for sure. I mean, I, 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 first of all, I think that there's nothing inherently incompatible between multipolarity and multilateralism, right? Every international order is rooted in some sort of rules. Uh, and yes, the form of multilateralism that will exist in a multipolar world might look different than the kind of multilateralism that you'll see in a unipolar world. But that doesn't mean that there's some sort of inherent non-compatibility between uh, multipolarity and multilateralism. There is no compatibility between the so-called liberal international order uh, and, and multipolarity, because the liberal international order uh, is rooted in, in Western leadership and in a very specific set of values that the entire world does not necessarily embrace. Uh, so when you have multipolarity, that means that there is pushback against the idea that the world can be rooted in a single set of values and in a single hegemonic power structure led by the West. Uh, so, you know, the, the, those things are, are worth unpacking that, you know, the, the term multilateralism and the term liberal international order should not be confused. And unfortunately, they are confused too often, right? You, you see the liberal international order and the rules-based international order as terms that are often uttered in the same breath. Uh, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, despite, you know, some important conceptual work that's been done over the you know, course of the past several years, uh, a lot of that has not, um, uh, you know, reached policymakers and, and they still tend to lump all these things together and not to second guess a lot of, of the things that they end up saying. Uh, we should also note that, uh, you know, multipolarity, uh, you know, th there's nothing, um, uh, you know, uh, as it relates to multi, uh, rather, I should say that multipolarity does not necessarily describe 
the uh, entirety of of what we're seeing right now in terms of the global transformation. Right, where multipolarity implies. Uh, you know, uh, 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 power structures in the material sense, right? That there are multiple power poles in the international system. Uh, and if you believe that the world is not just anarchic, that it's actually replete with certain norms and rules and, and intersubjective understandings, uh, you know, then then there's more to, to the emerging international order than just multipolarity, right? And that's why you've seen the Russians talk as well about polycentrism, you know, rather than, than multipolarity, right? It's not just a question of power distribution. It's also a question of who gets to write the rules of the game. And they think that the U.S. shouldn't be the only one who gets to write the rules of the game? They want to play a, a role in, in 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 that process as well. Uh, so you know that's why some some scholars, for example, Trina Flockhart, former colleague of mine at the University of Kent, has talked about an emerging multi-order world, for example, uh, in which you know there are several suborders uh, based on identity or, or geography within the overall global international order. So there are many different ways of conceptualizing. But you know we've we've also seen uh, you know uh, Amitavacharya, you know, come up with his notion of a of a multiplex world, uh, you know, or Oliver Stunkel with the post-Western world. Right? These are other conceptualizations as well that go beyond just multipolarity. And I guess this doesn't necessarily, I'm interested that you mentioned the whole anarchic world order uh, or the anarchic world system, because that's the, the sort of John Mersheimer line about how the world works. Uh, and it's my understanding that you don't necessarily come from the sort of neo-realist perspective of uh, someone like Mersheimer. So there's a lot of different perspectives on this, it seems like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, my PhD thesis, I wrote it from a, from an English school perspective, uh, the English School of International Relations. So the, the English School of, of International Relations has been criticized from all sides, right? I've, I've heard some scholars at conferences I've encountered who've, you know, criticized it as being, you know, realism in disguise. Uh, you know, the reality is, is it tries to be a grand theory, right? It, it tries to bring in uh, multiple different understandings. Uh, you know, in 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 its traditional incarnation, there's a sort of Hobbesian Machiavellian element in the international system, but there's also a, a Lockean or Grotian element to international society with with shared rules and norms and identities, and there's even a Kantian element in world society that's brought in as well. And so, basically, what what the English school, uh, you know, traditionally has said. Uh, is that, uh, you know, upon international society, you constantly see the international system and world society um, uh, impose uh, varying degrees of pressure depending on the the, the era in question. So in, in some eras, it looks more like, you know, an international society veers more towards the logic of a system in which it's more about, you know, power and strategic calculations rather than norms. In other times, norms tend to prevail a little bit more. Uh, and, and you see sort of world society at the grassroots level, you know, in, inform some of the content of international society. So, you know, that that's the traditional understanding as well. And there's more recent contributions to the literature in, in, in the school as well. You work for a think tank uh, that deals with uh, EU affairs, um, European Union affairs. So what does this all mean uh, for the European Union? Uh, well, I mean, that's something that's that we're seeing unfold in front of our eyes right now. I mean, we saw Germany uh, just over the weekend uh, uh, after a speech given by Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, undergo what appears to be a sea change. Uh, and its foreign policy priorities, uh, you know, no longer embracing this taboo on weapons exports, uh, willing to spend a lot more uh, on defense. Uh, and this has been, uh, you know, something that has, has been a major issue within EU, uh, you know, foreign and security policy uh, circles for a long time, is that basically Germany has been too attached to the old world and not, you know, prepared enough for the geopolitical realities of the new world. Uh, and to see uh, you know, this coming from from a social democratic uh, uh, chancellor, it was uh, was a remarkable uh, development. 
Um, you know, we also appeared to see the EU come together uh, to, uh, you know, finance the providing uh, of uh, fighter jets to the Ukrainians. It doesn't look like that's actually going to be proceeding in the end, possibly due to security considerations. But nonetheless, it shows uh, that Russia's military incursion into Ukraine here has has changed the landscape of political will, uh, you know, in in uh, the European Union. Um, you know, it, it, basically up until now, mostly France has been and, you know, of course, certain Brussels bureaucrats have been, you know, the big advocates for a more geopolitical union, you know, for a more strategically minded union, uh, one that can act more nimbly, more rapidly, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, and, you know, whereas other, you know, capitals were perhaps a little bit content to to live with elements of the status quo and to you know muddle uh, ahead without taking significant decisions on this front, uh, Europe's security environment has fundamentally changed uh, as a result of this, and and it looks as if at least right now we'll see if the momentum can be kept up, but at least right now this is an important moment uh, for uh, for the European Union, and and therefore perhaps. Uh, Russia should embrace this fact, seeing as they support a multipolar world. So if the EU emerges as more of a pole in the multipolar world, perhaps, uh, you know, that's uh, that's something that, uh, that that Moscow should not be opposed to. What is the potential political aftermath when this is all said and done? I mean, it's it's very early to tell what the political aftermath at the global level is going to be after, after this uh, after this conflict. I mean, you know, Russia has a legacy of engagement with uh, the developing world, particularly, you know, during the time of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, that's something that they've tried to play up, uh, you know, uh, in recent years, certainly in terms of their involvement in in uh, the Middle East, in Africa, places like this, uh, you know, also in, in Asia. Uh, so, you know, whether or not this war will undermine the notion uh, in much of the developing world that that Russia is genuinely committed to the principles of the UN Charter um, remains to be seen. Uh, you know, it's obviously a pretty flagrant uh, violation of, of the principles of the UN Charter. But at the same time, if there's anything that we've learned over over recent years, it's that states are prepared to look the other way sometimes in order to pursue uh, their own uh, conception of their own strategic interests. Um, so, you know, a lot will depend on the outcome of this war, on, on you know, the future of, of Russia's domestic political governance after this war, uh, you know, and indeed on, on the relationship between China and the West after this war, which also remains to be seen. Uh, you know, China has uh, deepened its strategic partnership with Russia significantly over the course of the past several years, and that brings China certain benefits, not just economic benefits, uh, but also strategic benefits. The fact that, uh, you know, there's there's a continental power right next to it that will, uh, you know, remain on side and make sure that China is not isolated as the rest of its security environment becomes a little bit more dicey uh, is, is quite useful. Uh, in strategic terms to China. At the same time, you know, part of China's uh, MO, at least um, uh, nominally speaking, has been uh, to defend the idea of an international order rooted in uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity, uh, you know, and non-interference in, in the internal affairs of other states. Uh, and this has been China's way to oppose Western interference in its internal affairs. Uh, and it's also been China's way to win uh, support in much of the developing world as well. Uh, and, you know, whether or not uh, China can reconcile those two things, on the one hand, it's strategic imperative of maintaining good relations with Russia, while on the other hand, you know, maintaining its normative discourse that it has uh, backed for quite some time uh, certainly remains to be seen. And there will also be the dynamic, of course, of, of uh, China-West relations, which 
uh, you know, could well uh, uh, worsen, uh, you know, if uh, the the Russia-China relationship deepens as a result of this conflict over Ukraine. Uh, or it could well be that uh, the West might realize that, okay, you know, we've made perhaps a few mistakes over the course of the past uh, few decades as it relates to Russia. We've embraced too much of a zero-sum logic uh, in our relationship with Moscow, and we don't want to repeat those same mistakes in the Asia-Pacific region. And so while we want to have some sort of competition with China, we want to manage that competition a little bit more responsibly, uh, responsibly than the than the you know sort of very uh, you know heightened rhetoric uh, surrounding the the Indo-Pacific, et cetera, and 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 other issues of of Western criticism of China in uh, in recent uh, years. It seems like right now, let's say concessions were made uh, to Russia, uh, guarantees were made of uh, you know Ukraine's neutrality. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of people would say, "Oh, this is a, a appeasement." Um, I feel like if Russia decides to back down, uh, you know, that Putin finds that unacceptable uh, for various reasons. So, is there any way that diplomacy can even uh, prevail at this point? I mean, I, I was very happy to see what uh, Macron was doing, speaking with Putin. I think that that was a step in the right direction, uh, but I, I just don't know. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of uh, diplomatic off ramps? Is that out of the question at this point? Well, I think we should be doing whatever we we possibly can to try to incentivize, uh, you know, Putin to see off ramps, you know, if, if we can come up with some. Uh, and, and part of that includes not overdoing it with the sanctions. Uh, you know, they're already, you know, quite strong as they are. Part of it might involve signaling certain, you know, creative ways of, of breaking the, the diplomatic logjam that we saw uh, you know, back in, in, in late 2021. But then again, it might be too late for that at this point. You know, at the end of the day, the military dynamics will, you know, in all likelihood take precedence. And as I mentioned before, you know, y- Ukraine, as long as they feel like they're holding out, they're not going to want to compromise. Um, and Russia, you know, needs to, you know, achieve the bare minimum of its goals in, in this campaign, uh, you know, in order to justify the campaign back home. Putin needs to be able to tell his people, look, I got something, you know, you, you lost a lot of, of, you know, economic well-being because of these sanctions. But, you know, at least I got X, Y and Z as it relates to Ukraine. And I've completed some sort of historical mission. Uh, could, those, so- could those sanctions, by the way, could those actually harden nationalist sentiments in in Russia at this point and actually benefit Putin in any way? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the term benefit Putin might be a little bit too strong, but I mean, could they could they harden Russia's position and make it more difficult for them to climb down? Then, yes, the, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, so, again, you know, we have to be very careful with how we calibrate our economic response, how we calibrate our our military response. We have to you know, help Ukraine as much as we can. We have to signal as clearly as possible that what Russia has done is illegal and unacceptable, a complete violation of, of uh, you know, the, the, the principles of, of the contemporary international order. But at the same time, you know, we have to make sure that the situation doesn't escalate. Uh, so that will, you know, that needs to enter into our calculations as to how we calibrate our economic and, and military responses. And we have to signal as best we can, you know, what sort of diplomatic off-ramps are there. But at the end of the day, you know, the the opportunity, I think, the best opportunity for the West to have provided off-ramps was in late 2021 and early 2022. And of course, we'll never know whether or not Putin was always planning this war. And if he put forward his demands in late 2021, just for them to be rejected so he could justify a war. It does seem as if there was internal dispute over some of this. I I mean, we saw the... the, uh 
sort of showdown with uh, Putin and um, his spy chief, uh, Sergei, I don't want to botch his name, but, uh, you know, there, there were people telling Putin, you know, we, we should keep doing diplomacy. Even I think uh, Lavrov, the, the week before this all went down, was saying we, we need to try diplomacy. And then that all went to, you know, the birds, I guess. But uh, it seems like th there's even dispute amongst um, people within Putin's circles. No, there's no question that that most people in in Moscow were were taken by surprise at, at the announcement of this war. Um, you know, perhaps some people in the upper echelons of the military knew about it. Uh, some people around Putin, you know, uh, probably knew about it, but there's probably no shortage of people in Russia's political elite who thought that the recognition of the Donetsk and, and Lugansk People's Republics was the was the end game. Now, it shouldn't have been thought of as the end game uh, because, for the reasons I mentioned, the only way that Russia could truly achieve its its goals in Ukraine uh, from a military perspective is, you know, through regime change in in Kiev. Uh, but you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe people just didn't think that Putin would go that far. People, you know. Uh, understand and, and deeply value the, the deep people to people ties between Russia and Ukraine, you know, which go way back. And so for, for so many reasons, you know, this war was, was unthinkable. Um, but it's clearly, it's clearly Putin's war. And that, that goes without question. Well, I want to thank you again, Zachary Pakin for coming on Parallax News. Maybe we'll have you back on uh, in, in the future uh, when there's more developments. Uh, thank you again. And how can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, they can uh, go to CEPS.eu uh, for the Center for European Policy Studies. So that's CEPS.eu, or they can go to PeaceDiplomacy.org, uh, which is the website of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, where I'm a non-resident fellow. Next up, a conversation with David Swanson of the global anti-war movement, World Beyond War. I don't want to say much more as I think it is best to jump right into the conversation with David, but I will say I hope you enjoyed the prior segment with Zachary Pakin. And with that being said, let's get to David Swanson and World Beyond War. Welcome to Parallax Views. David Swanson, American anti-war activist and executive director of World Beyond War, an anti-war organization with chapters and affiliates in about, I, I believe, two dozen countries uh, at this point. Yes, indeed. So, David, we're going to talk about this just horrible unfolding events happening uh, in Ukraine, the, the invasion uh, of Ukraine. But first, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about your background as an anti-war activist, and for those that don't know, uh, what World Beyond War is. Uh, well, I've managed to work for generally anti-war, pro-peace organizations since around 2004, uh, and started up World Beyond War with some other folks around 2014, uh, and started it as a, a global organization uh, intending to have board members and advisory board members and chapters and staff and volunteers uh, in every corner of the world. Uh, and we now do have people who've signed our peace pledge in 190 some countries uh, and have chapters and affiliates in dozens of countries and board members around the world. 
uh, and we started it to be something that would work educationally and in activism, uh, going after the entire institution of war. Uh, so not just the particular war of the week uh, that's in the news, but in fact, taking advantage of those rare moments when corporate media outlets are mentioning war to try to educate people about the need to abolish the entire institution of war, which actually thus far, until we get to the nuclear wars, destroys and kills and harms many more people through the diversion of resources and other harms it causes than through the wars themselves. So I, I guess the question that you probably get a lot is that that seems like a very uh, big goal. I mean, a lot of people say, is that even feasible, uh, ending war and sort of establishing a, a just and sustainable peace? How do you respond uh, to people that are skeptical? Well, I don't claim to know the future. Uh, I do claim to know that we have had incredible luck surviving with nuclear weapons this long, uh, that we now have two governments sitting each on piles of nuclear weapons that could destroy all life on Earth many hundreds of times over, uh, and threatening to use them and demonstrating and testing and rehearsing their nuclear uh, attacks. Uh, and we won't survive. Uh, pushing the hostility between these two countries much further uh, without serious risk uh, of that happening very, very soon. So, you know, whether ending all war strikes you as crazy or fanciful, I really don't give up. I don't know if I can say what I should say on, on this program, but uh, when the alternative is destroying all life on Earth faster than climate and, and ecological collapse can do it, you know, it, it's not a luxury to live without war. It's it's the only way we live. Uh, so, you know, I'm for survival. That's, you know, is that asking too much? So with regards to the anti-war movement right now, and then we'll get a little bit more into this current crisis, I'm of two minds on things because I'm seeing what seems like the restoration of, uh, you know, a lot of the U.S. foreign policy blob. And uh, it's quite scary when you're seeing uh, people like John Bolton on TV constantly now uh, with this current crisis. Uh, so that that worries me a little bit. I'm wondering what is this going to do to the anti-war movement? But then I look at what is happening in, in Moscow with the anti-war protests and, and just globally. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, the anti-war movement seems very healthy. Where do you think things stand right now? Well, you know, there's like 18 people and a couple dogs on Earth who oppose all wars, no matter what flavor launched by what country, what political party. They're just against organized mass murder. I mean, it's very, very rare. There have not been any massive uh, rallies or marches taking over cities ever by such people. When you had the big anti-war movement in the United States and in Europe and around the world in 2002, three, four, it was it was an anti-Republican Party war movement uh, that around 2007 lost all its funding, much of its support. It was more important to elect a Democrat to the White House, right? And there went that anti-war movement. When you see an anti-war movement now in Russia, uh, it's it's against a Russian war, but it's against a particular president uh, of Russia as well. 
uh, and the enthusiasm, the support for it that you see in Western governments. And my God, the New York Times is suddenly in favor of peace rallies and CNN suddenly cares about war victims and so forth. This is anti-Russian war. It's not anti-war. Uh, and it's all good. It's not bad. I'll take any flavor of anti-war advocacy we can get. Uh, but we have to recognize the limitations uh, to it, uh, as well as the hypocrisy. When you have, you know, people like Samantha Power doing videos uh, about the poor Ukrainians, treating them as human beings. Well, hell yes, they are human beings. You should sympathize with war victims. But I can't find any Samantha Power videos like that from Iraq or Afghanistan or Somalia or Yemen or Syria or Yemen or Libya or, you know. So I think we just did strikes on Yemen again a, a few days ago while this was all happening. Well, I don't use the word we the way that you and everyone else do, but the U.S. military-backed Saudi uh, royal kingdom did uh and you know well, where are the sanctions on the on the the royalty uh of saudi arabia when you're putting sanctions on the president of russia i, I mean i'm in favor of actually prosecuting in the international criminal court uh the president of russia but not if you aren't going to prosecute uh, the current and several past presidents of the united states as well I know you wrote about the solidarity right now between U.S. and Russian peace activists. Uh, could you speak about um, how we should approach that and, and how we should feel about it? Because it seems like, uh, you know, th this is a, a great thing that's happening, at, at least on, on the Russian end, this resistance to the war effort. Yeah, I can't oppose Russians uh, risking arrest uh, to demonstrate for peace against uh, a war being dramatically escalated by the Russian government. I mean, this is 100% good. Uh, the fact that you have the Rand Corporation uh, report from three years ago proposing <laughs> that the, the United States arm Ukraine and provoke Russia into something like this and in favor of, uh, of getting protests going in Russian cities and so forth, that doesn't make them bad. It, it, it creates a need to be careful and watch how the United States tries to manipulate the outcome. Uh, but peace demonstrations are good things. Uh, and the things that, that the Russian peace activists are saying are good things. Uh, and the risks they're taking are courageous. Uh, and so at, at rootsaction.org, I have another job at rootsaction.org, where we do all kinds of online activism. We set up a page where, in particular, US peace activists could post messages to Russian peace activists. And we've collected now thousands of them and made PDFs and sent them to friends in Russia to spread around uh, to say, we're with you. Uh, and we're not just against Russian wars, we're against US wars too, we're against wars by everybody. And you're inspiring us uh, and we wanna build on what you're doing and work together uh, despite our governments. Yeah, and I only thought that was important to mention because you have an article it a world Beyond War uh, that's by Daniel Hunter of Waging Nonviolence entitled uh, Ukraine's Secret Weapon May Prove to Be Civilian Resistance. And I think it's a really important that's made, a, it's a really important point that's made in that article, which is, you know, the Western press is really focusing on uh, Ukrainian diplomatic or military resistance uh, to this invasion. But you have uh, Ukrainian civilians that are doing a, a lot of uh, brave work. 
Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Without a few articles like this, I would have no idea what was happening. Uh, there are important reporters who aren't getting uh, onto CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times telling us what's happening. So you have this debate in the corporate media. Uh, there are trucks and convoys of weaponry headed for Kiev should the United States blow them up. Uh, you know, yes, that's one side of the debate. Yes. And the other side is, no, sadly, the United States should do nothing because this would be stupid and risk nuclear apocalypse. Well, that that guy wins the debate. Right. But both <laughs> it's a weak argument because this notion that you can do violence or do nothing is going to get us all killed eventually if we don't outgrow it. Uh, and so to look at the article you refer to, uh, people can find at worldbeyondwar.org or wagingnonviolence.org, uh, you see that people in Ukraine are putting sandbags and concrete blocks across streets. They're changing the, the directions on the street signs, just as the people did in the Prague Spring. Uh, they're putting their bodies in front of tanks, just as the US media to this day loves to celebrate a guy doing in Tiananmen Square in China. Uh, they're, they're collectively en masse blocking tanks and trucks uh, without weapons. Uh, and. There are people like Yuri Shelyadzenko, who's on our board at World Beyond War, who lives in Kiev, who are advocating uh, nonviolent, non-cooperation, nonviolent direct action. Uh, and, and it's not just, you know, a crazy principled idea to make you feel better in your heart of hearts, uh, despite its doomed failure. Nonviolent actions, when well done, uh, you know, are far more successful than violent ones. Uh, and nonviolent campaigns, even against invasions and occupations, never mind oppression domestically, have for a century now proven far more likely to succeed than violent ones. Uh, and when you pile on top of that, the fact that the violent ones could get us all killed in a nuclear apocalypse, the choice seems pretty clear. I'm glad you brought up Yuri. I saw him on, uh, I believe, Democracy Now! recently. What are the words you're getting from him on what is happening in, in Ukraine right now? Well, he's always been one of these few very principled anti-war, pro-peace activists against Russian uh, imperialism and against U.S. and NATO imperialism, uh, and he hasn't changed his tune. Uh, and he's He's outraged uh, by a government in Ukraine that's handing out free rifles. Uh, he's he's outraged by the Russian invasion of his country. Uh, he's hearing explosions. Uh, he's hearing sirens. Uh, you know, he's living through this in a way uh, that I'm not. Uh, and, and yet people tell me that my position is insane and I could only have it from the comfort of my chair far, far away. Uh, and yet here's Yuri sitting in the middle of Kiev, uh, you know, saying the same thing and educating, uh, the world, uh, on the, the, not just the moral superiority, but the practical superiority of nonviolent action. So, you mentioned earlier the RAND Corporation, and you have an article at World Beyond War entitled RAND Corporation Urged Creation of the Horrors You're Seeing in Ukraine. For my listeners, maybe you could tell them what the RAND Corporation is, if they're unfamiliar, and how this report uh, from only a few years ago uh, entitled Overextending and Unbalancing Russia, Assessing the Impact of Cost-Imposing Options, why it's uh, very significant right now. 
Well, the Rand Corporation is a semi-private branch or tentacle of the military-industrial complex, uh, works hand-in-glove with the Pentagon, uh, is the place where Daniel Ellsberg worked when uh, he helped write and then later leaked uh, the Pentagon Papers report on all the lies and, uh, and misconduct in the war on Vietnam. Uh, and it's a place that puts out reports on how people in the military weaponry establishment are thinking thinking. Uh, and they put out this report in 2019 on ways to push Russia, to overextend Russia, to weaken Russia, uh, to, for example, uh, send weapons of war into Ukraine, which at that time was something that President Obama wouldn't do, said was crazy, said this was something Russia would fight over and the U.S. wouldn't and shouldn't fight over, and it would be nuts to be sending weapons of war into Ukraine. Of course, President Trump and Biden disagreed on that one. Uh, you know, one of these few points where I actually think President Obama got something right that others got wrong. Um, and, and so the advocacy in this report, among other things, uh, is for pushing Russia into an arms race, putting more weapons, even nuclear weapons and nuclear threats uh, into Eastern Europe, pushing Russia to spend more, overextend, engage in limited warfare. But it, but it, they warn in this report, it has to be calibrated carefully to not create a wider war. Well, wars famously are not uh, easily calibrated uh, and spin out of the control of whatever theorists con concocted them uh, in reports in the years leading up. Uh, I mean, this is risking nuclear apocalypse for the sake of supposedly weakening Russia. Uh, and then the sanctions is part of it. And the, and the goal of creating demonstrations, protests within Russia. I mean, this looks like success. Of course, they also want uh, to reduce Russian profits from fossil fuels. And we've seen this already with Germany cutting off the pipeline uh, in, in the buildup of this hostility. On the other hand, this whole operation is jacking up the price of oil and uh, the, 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 that's going to pay for you know anything Russia might be suffering from the sanctions. I mean, it's, it's a very chaotic uh, attempt to, to threaten the Russian government. But the point is, this is a respectable, central US government approved report that sounds very nice and polite. Uh, but what it's proposing is exactly what people are seeing now on their TVs when the media suddenly cares about the victims of war. It's interesting too, because in some ways it's sort of a smoking gun uh, for what a lot of people have been saying that, you know, th this is not just uh, about Russia and Ukraine. This is about, you know, NATO and the U.S. poking the bear a bit. And I'm not, that's not to say that uh, we shouldn't hold Russia accountable. They made the choice to invade, Putin made the choice to invade. But there is this poking the bear element that we can see in this RAND report. Isn't it funny that we always have to say, as we indeed do always have to say, in blaming so-and-so, I'm not uh, turning these eight other people into saints. It's, it's just insane. Uh, I, I mean, it's true. We shouldn't have to 
<laughs> you, you shouldn't have to because it's idiotic, but you do have to, even though it's idiotic. I mean, because people don't get it. They think blame is like a sticker and you put it on somebody's nose and nobody else can have any. Like they, it's like we've all become criminal prosecutors or cartoon characters. You know, blame or fault is infinite. You know, there's more than enough to go around. Uh, and you have all kinds of brilliant people predicting that NATO expansion would lead to a war just like this one from the from 1989 to this day, right? Well, you, and, you even and, had the father of containment theory, George Kennan, saying NATO expansion may lead to some problems down the road with Russia. Yeah, what what better centrist foreign policy expert than George Kennan? How about the current director of the CIA, who wouldn't say it today, but wrote it in a book years ago, that expanding NATO would create just this problem and it would be a bad idea. He was against it. Um, you know, so you 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 look at all these predictions over the years, you look at the NATO expansion, you look at the very reasonable demands put down in writing from early December until now by the Russian government, the exact same demands the U.S. made when there were missiles in Cuba, the exact same demands they would make if there were Russian missiles in Montreal today. Uh, and, and then because when Russia escalates the war, Putin talks about national identity and ancient mythological history and ethnic identity stuff. Everybody, I mean, smart people suddenly declare that it has nothing to do with NATO, that it's purely Putin's imperialism. When, you know, I've never seen a war, uh, I, I can't think of any war in centuries that didn't have that kind of nationalistic racist stuff in the propaganda for it. I mean, if Russia had waged a war without that stuff, that's what would have been remarkable. Well, also, I just wanted to say real quick, I feel as if people miss a lot that I think that nationalism we see in Russia has a history going back to the immediate aftermath of uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think Russia was really left in tatters, and I don't think the U.S., and its allies ever treated Russia as someone they could actually bring into the fold. I, I think we often treated them as like an injured dog that we kicked around a lot and we never wanted to really involve them and treat them as equals. Uh, absolutely correct. Uh, the, the, the Soviet Union, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, were taking dramatic steps. Uh, we're taking unilateral actions to de-escalate uh, and reduce hostility and try to build friendship. Uh, and, and, and Russia wanted to be part of NATO, wanted to be part of Europe, wanted, wanted to think of itself as European uh, and was was kicked and punched and knocked aside and driven uh, into, you know, an alliance with China now that it never wanted. And once that happens, that leads to, I think, um, that can lead to like an insurgent nationalism when you're like, if you're going to treat us this way and you don't want us to be part of NATO or, or we don't feel that we're fairly treated, that can lead to insurgent nationalism. Absolutely. Um, to, to be clear, yet again, no matter how dumb it is to have to say this, I mean, I just watched a video with uh, Ben Norton on the Gray Zone, I think it's called, a guy I usually uh, respect incredibly, uh, saying Putin was forced into uh, this uh, defensive uh, action. Well, nobody's forced into attacking, bombing, and invading another country. Uh, and there, it's not the only or the best 
means of defense. Uh, so just to be clear about that, um, but it's predictable that you're and predicted and threatened uh, and seen coming uh, for years and months. When we're looking at this uh, current crisis, I think that a lot of people are reacting in ways that, that I personally find uh, just abhorrent. I, I think a lot of people are treating this like it's some kind of action movie that they're watching from the comfort of their home. I mean, I, I see people um, saying we need no fly zones and then getting upset when NATO rules that out. And I, I think NATO was right to rule that out because I'm pretty sure those no fly zones could lead to a, a nuclear war. Well, there's no question. I, I mean, and this is the reason that Ukraine isn't already in NATO, uh, because it's not just up to Ukraine and their inherent sovereign right to choose to be in NATO if they darn well want to. But it, it requires every other member of NATO committing to jump straight into any war that Ukraine gets in. And Ukraine's already in a war. Uh, at this point. So, you know, this is what NATO is. You, you could never have created NATO after World War I because it's too much like the idiocy that created World War I, agreeing to jump into any war that somebody else gets into is just not a smart idea. Uh, and, and this is what NATO amounts to. And so if this war spills over into any number of bordering countries uh, that are members of NATO, then every member of NATO is required to jump into that war. Uh, and you, of course, have the United States with its nuclear weapons and with its nuclear weapons, arguably illegally, already stationed in five other NATO countries in Europe. Uh, and Russia, with its nuclear weapons and talking about putting them in Belarus, and some people talking about putting US nukes in Ukraine. I mean, this, this has every possibility of destroying life on Earth. It's, this is worse, worse risk than anything in the 1980s when all the polls found everybody saying the gravest problem facing us is nuclear weapons. Now, nobody will mention it, but it still exists, you know? Well, it's interesting you say that because I get two responses to that recently when I say, you know, we don't want to risk a, a nuclear conflict. We don't want to risk World War III. We should all uh, be very careful, or, or the, the countries, uh, I shouldn't say we, you're right about that. The, the, the leaders of these countries should be very careful uh, with the steps they take. There's one false move could lead to annihilation. And, you know, I, I'm surprised at some of the responses I see where people say, well, we can use, just use our missile defense systems um, or, uh, you know, oh, mutually assured destruction uh, is why a nuclear conflict couldn't happen. And I think those are way off base. And I was wondering if you could address uh, this, I think, very misguided skepticism people have towards the risk of nuclear war. Well, not everybody has it. Uh, the scientists who maintain the doomsday clock have got it closer to midnight than it's ever been. Uh, numerous experts uh, will tell you, I was on a, on a webinar earlier today uh, with Ira Helfland, who's, who's quite smart on this issue, uh, will tell you of the incredible risk, uh, including uh, from attacks uh, near nuclear power plants uh, in Ukraine, uh, which include some of the biggest of those in the world. 
the, the fact is that we have been incredibly, incredibly lucky. Uh, and the near misses uh, from human action and malice and from sheer stupid misunderstanding and technical failure, there's hundreds of them. It's not just one time in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, hundreds of them. We've been incredibly lucky. And if you keep these things around, uh, sooner or later, they're going to be used. And they don't get used in some foreign place where you don't care about the people. When they get used, they impact the planet, not just because the, the escalation can, can become uh, massive, but because a small nuclear war will create a winter, a, a nuclear winter that will kill crops globally, that will starve us all globally. Uh, and it, this ought to be taught in elementary schools, uh, it ought to be known. This is, you know, the science, the science, we must follow the science, but nobody tells you this science. So, so you don't consider it. Yeah, I was gonna say it was something like people when they invoke mad, well, they won't do it because mutually assured destruction. That's a hypothesis. We don't, I mean, war is not, war involves a lot of passion and irrationality. So if someone decides to launch a nuke, uh, you know, they may decide to launch it regardless of, you know, what uh, that could entail um, in a broader sense. And I, I think people really need to think these things through. Uh, I, I think disarmament is a very important thing. Uh, I've been surprised when I've heard people, not experts really, but just certain individuals I've met that will say things like, um, uh, you know, if, if we just had everyone, if everyone had nuclear uh, arms available, then uh, you know, this would lead to people not bombing each other. And I, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. Uh, I think people need to really start taking uh, the nuclear issue more seriously. I, I mean, either Vladimir Putin is an absolutely unpredictable madman, as I hear thousands of times every day, or he is a creature of pure rationality who would never engage in a nuclear war, even though he keeps threatening to either agreeing with half the United States, Joe Biden is a senile, idiotic madman, or agreeing with the other half of the United States, Donald Trump is a pure lunatic, uh, or these guys are creatures of absolute rationality who would never initiate a nuclear war, even though you know a dozen or so U.S. presidents have threatened it. Um, you know, you can't have it both ways. I mean, make a choice here. And it, even if people are generally disinclined to destroy the whole world. And there's actually a lot more rationality all around than war propaganda suggests. Accidents happen. And we have had so many near misses with accidents, with nuclear weapons that we can't go on being that lucky. We have to get rid of them. Before we close out here, I know you mentioned uh, Daniel Ellsberg earlier. Uh, for my younger listeners, what do you think we can learn about uh, Daniel Ellsberg and his experience within, you know, we mentioned Rand Corporation earlier. He was involved in Rand Corporation. He's written about the doomsday machine. And of course, uh, he was also uh, the, the, the person that gave us the Pentagon Papers. What should we learn from Ellsberg today, in your opinion? He's, uh, you know, he's someone who in his early career was 
uh, he would agree with me. I'm not insulting him. I, I love and respect him. Uh, very misguided. He was he was fully on board with militarism, uh, but he saw it up close and he saw peace activism and he listened to peace activists and he listened to people who were risking prison to oppose the war that he was taking part in. Uh, and he changed his mind uh, and he took the risk of sending himself to prison to expose lies about the war in Vietnam uh, in an age in which corporate newspapers uh, would take that information and print it, uh, in an age when there was a chance that, that courts would not send a whistleblower to prison. Uh, and, and yet there was that risk, uh, and he took it very bravely, uh, and then he didn't sit down. He became a full-time engaged peace activist. Uh, I don't agree with him on everything, uh, but I agree with him on darn near everything. Uh, and this is someone who, as you say, wrote it recently, wrote an incredible book called The Doomsday Machine about nuclear weapons and nuclear warfare, including the U.S. plans over the years for absolute destruction of the world, for the elimination of all life in Russia and China, when they didn't know that it would that it would end all life everywhere else as well on the planet. Uh, who documents the the threats, private threats to other presidents around the world, and public threats to to television cameras to use nuclear weapons by numerous U.S. presidents. Uh, Dan Ellsberg, who has worked closely with RootsAction.org uh, and helped us create a petition on this subject, wants to get rid of the land-based nuclear weapons, the ICBMs, as the top priority. Because the minute there's some kind of conflict and somebody has three minutes to decide whether the nuclear war is happening and doesn't want, well, what a horror it would be not to use your nuclear weapons in a nuclear war, uh, those, those land-based nuclear weapons get launched because they're targets if they don't. Uh, and they, they've, they've got to be taken off what, what Putin put nuclear weapons on this week. High alert, hair trigger alert, go in minutes. They got You got to have the weapons separate from the missiles as China does. You have to be forced to give it a little bit of thought before you destroy the world. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a first step. If Russia and the United States want to prove to the world that they're rational creatures and there's some basis for what they're saying and doing right now, set the nukes aside and continue the madness without them, at least at least take that limited step. In closing, I, I guess I just wanted to say that I, I think people should be very careful about getting caught up um, into war fever right now. And, you know, my big concern is uh, there's a, a lot of um, triumphalism by people who think, oh, it's, it's over, the Ukrainians are about to defeat uh, Putin. And I, I think we're seeing that that's not the case today. We're seeing more civilian casualties. And I, I don't think we should be really seeking to prolong the conflict, but we should be looking for an off-ramp and diplomacy because I, I'm very worried about the, the casualties that are going to build up. And my hope is that we can find that off-ramp. Uh, I just wanted to get your closing thoughts maybe on the possibility for a diplomatic solution to this. You know, if these things end without global destruction, they end with a diplomatic agreement. 
the sanity would suggest jumping to the diplomatic agreement sooner rather than after more death and injury and trauma and refugee crises. Uh, and it's perfectly doable. Uh, the demands that, that Russia has been making for months are perfectly reasonable and can be met without anyone suffering in the least. Uh, you, could meet a, you could meet half of them and possibly get a compromise with Russia. You, you don't need to have Ukraine be part of Russia. You don't need to have one side win. You can save some face for all of these, uh, you know, self-conscious prima donnas, but you can make Ukraine neutral. You can make Ukraine friends with the West and friends with the East. Ukraine can, can be what Austria and Switzerland and dozens of countries are, neutral. Uh, ought to have been done a long, long time ago. I can already hear people saying, but Ukraine isn't part of NATO. So how do you respond to people that say, well, technically they're not part of NATO? Ukraine is not a part of NATO is the simple answer that you've already given. The people of Ukraine have voted year after year after year after year not to be part of NATO. The nations of NATO have you know, overwhelmingly said we don't want at least yet to make Ukraine part of NATO because it gets into wars and then we have to be in the wars. Uh, you know, Ukraine is... Ukraine is a country uh, deeply divided uh, in terms of language and ethnicity and historical identity, uh, and those divisions uh, have been heightened and intensified uh, over the past couple of decades by both sides, by the West and by the East. Uh, and that has to be undone. It has to be undone carefully with some series of steps uh, that could include some autonomy for the different regions of Ukraine while maintaining a nation of Ukraine and neutrality for Ukraine. But, but I guess what I mean, and I promise to let you go after this, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, confrontational about it because I agree with you, but I, I could see people saying, well, why is Russia demanding neutrality from Ukraine if Ukraine is already neutral? That's sort of what I was getting at because that's something people will often bring up or try to push. Russia has asked for a commitment not to add Ukraine or Georgia to NATO. Russia has not been given that commitment. Russia has been told uh, repeatedly we're going to add Ukraine and, and Georgia to NATO. Uh, so it's not that they are in it, but they are on the way to being in it. They, you know, Ukraine has huge piles of U.S. weapons. You know, you can quit your job and run off to be a hero in Ukraine and get your free rifle, but you did already pay for it with your tax dollars that didn't get you a decent education or a decent job or healthcare or retirement in the United States contributed to how pissed off you were when you headed off to get your free rifle. Uh, the, the, the troops, the war rehearsals, the weapons, uh, the buildup of of armies and weapons on, on the border of the, the independent republics, as they call themselves in the East, uh, all of this was, was not neutral. I mean, this is not respecting sovereignty, it's not working for peace, and it's certainly not treating Ukraine as neutral or Ukraine being neutral. Well, I want to thank you again, David Swanson, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, I just want to get your, your closing thought here. Uh, what are your hopes uh, going forward? And, and of course, I, I think we all are hoping that, you know, the lives being lost right now, that there's a, a stop put to all of this and that a solution can be found diplomatically. 
Well, I don't have a prediction, uh, at least not one that's positive. I think if things continue in the general direction they're going, we are all going to die relatively soon. Uh, but I think there is every possibility of changing that. Uh, and I think we fail to recognize the power of nonviolent movements. We fail to recognize how many times we've prevented a massive war on Iran, uh, a, a massive escalation of war on Syria, uh, et cetera. Uh, and nobody, nobody expected uh, peace rallies in, in Russia like this, uh, not even the Rand Corporation. Uh, nobody expected the sort of solidarity being built across national borders. Uh, there's a, a week of action, May 1st, March 1st to 7th, and a day of action globally on this, March 6th. Uh, you can go to worldbeyondwar.org for information. I don't think it'll match February 15th, 2003. Uh, and I don't think people realize the good that was done on that, uh, that day that clearly was not ultimately 100% uh, successful. Uh, but I think... Uh, we have every possibility uh, to build uh, a big movement uh, in support of nonviolent resolution to conflicts uh, and to learn the lessons about the institutions that get us into these situations in the first place and undo them and start shifting to working on positive things and addressing the emergencies that we don't have a choice about rather than these manufactured ones. Uh, you know, there's, there's every chance we just have to do it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I've been burning the midnight oil trying to get these episodes out as quickly as possible. So I want to wrap this up by saying my thoughts and prayers are with Ukrainians right now, caught in the middle of all this. And also, if you support my work, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Bit tired right now. So I'll be signing off. And with that being said. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. To Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.